Good morning. This morning, our scripture verse is Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. It's on page 525 in the Blue Bibles, so go ahead and I'll give you a moment to turn there. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're new, we have been in a series the last couple months and we will be for quite a while in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is one of Jesus' most uh, well-known sermons, certainly his longest recorded uh, sermon. And so let me just remind us why we're teaching on this and what our hopes are, uh, and then we'll get into Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Um, we're, we're living in this moment right now that we've characterized, probably putting it mildly, as cultural PTSD. Everybody feels beleaguered, trolled, victimized, uh, oppressed, um, and just confused. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of uh, abuse of power. There's things that are happening out in the world that make us feel pressed down. And that seems to be the general sentiment by many is just like the world has gone crazy. The world has lost its mind. And how do we make sense of this? And how do we live uh, in a world that, that is experiencing this as a people of resilient love who are not reflecting back to the world the anxiety that seems to be pervasive in the world, but rather are with kind of creativity and imagination and patience and peace and love uh, living as a counterculture in a world of anxiety. And so Jesus uh, gives us kind of a vision for this, what it looks like and how we do this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus shows up in imperial Rome, right, in a, in a context much more violent, much more chaotic, much crazier than ours. And he shows up and he begins to proclaim his kingdom. And he says, don't freak out, repent, stop being so anxious, so worried. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, I I'm here. And that's chapter four. And he begins to bring the healing power of his kingdom to bear on both individuals and uh, the institutions of his day. He begins to challenge those. And really, the Sermon on the Mount is his unpacking of, of that manifesto. What does it look like for the kingdom of God to be here, to be among you, to be present, to be here and now? And, and yet to know that it's not come in its fullness, that we look forward with a sense of longing and discontent as God's people towards this future kingdom that is coming and one day will come in fullness. And, the, and we see that in the book of Revelation. And so Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. What does it look like to, to live as a beautiful community? The word Beatitude. What does it look like to be a people characterized by resilient love? And he says, good news to you. Good news to you. And he's talking to a group of people that maybe wouldn't normally be considered by, uh, West, at least in the Western world, uh, and certainly not at this time, as blessed. Blessed are you, happy are you, fortunate are you, poor in spirit. Blessed are you, meek. Blessed are you who are peacemakers, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus shows us those who are blessed, because the king has drawn near, you are blessed. Not because there's anything inherently morally superior about you, but because... God has looked on you with favor and he's drawn near to you in the person and work of Jesus. You are blessed. And then he's going to go on in the rest of the sermon, uh, 
the rest of chapter 5 to chapter 7 to unpack what does it look like for us practically to give us some instructions, some commands on what it looks like to, to live this out. And so this little section here, 13 to 16, he uses some metaphors to describe and to commission his people as missionaries to go out and to begin to live these things out. And he uses two, prim- two primary metaphors, salt and light, two things that would have been very familiar to people of that time. So Jesus isn't like some hipster you know, philosopher here with a whiteboard, just like pulling things out of thin air and put them on YouTube so that they'll go viral, right? He's not looking for tweets here. Like this is Jesus drawing on concepts that would have been very common in ancient Judaism and to the audience that he was speaking to. So salt and light. What's the connection with salt and light? What does that mean for us? John Stodd, a pastor and author, says this. Jesus calls his disciples to exert a double influence on the secular community around them. A negative influence, and that's salt, a negative influence by arresting its decay. And a positive influence by bringing light into its darkness. For it's one thing to stop the spread of evil, it's another to promote the spread of truth, beauty, and goodness. If you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go back. Josh did a great job, Pastor Josh did a great job of unpacking what it looks like to be salt and what it looks like to preserve a world that is given to disintegration and chaos and crazy. And this week, you look, what does it look like for us to shine out as the light of the world? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Why does Jesus use this metaphor of light. What does it mean to be the light of the world? Now, remember the context here in uh, the ancient world. This is pre-electricity, which is hard for some of us to imagine. You don't have street lights. You don't have electricity. You don't have uh, the bright lights of the city. And so he says, if you put a city on a hill and you light it up, it's literally going to be so luminary that it lights up an entire region. If you're in utter darkness, like you've ever been in a place where there's no city lights, uh, I imagine this is what it's like to grow up in a small town in Indiana. There's that like utter darkness that some of you know very well where you can't see your hand in front of your face. And if within 100 feet, if somebody lights up even a candle, it, 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 it transfers that light and it can, it can be of great value to us uh, in the world. And it's that kind of darkness that Jesus is describing. He says, I've called you to be a light of the world. A light of the world. A light, literally that word for world is the entire cosmos, the entire universe. You are the light of the world, he says. So what does it mean to be the light of the world? Jesus is picking up on a theme, light, that's like, by the way, George Lucas did not invent the light-dark thing, okay? Uh, this is a theme that goes way back to the very beginning of the Bible. Our origin story, if you will, as a human uh, race, is rooted in concepts of light and darkness. So if you read back in the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, the earth is dark and formless and void. And God speaks to create this creative speech act of God where he creates the universe out of nothing. And he says, let there be light. And there was light. So Jesus picking up on that, then in John chapter 8, verse 12, says, I am light the light of the world. 
If anyone follows me, they will not be in darkness, but they will have the light of life in them. Jesus says, I am the creative agent. I am the one that takes what's formless and gives it form. I am the one that takes void and fills it with energy and vitality and life. I am that one. I am the light of the world. When I come into a room, when I come into a city, when I come into a human being, everything changes, moves from darkness to light. And then picking up on that theme, he then looks at us and he says, you are the light of the world. So what does that mean? Three words. Let me give you three words to just make it real simple. What does it mean for us to be the light of the world? It means that we bring clarity into a world of darkness, into a world you could call of cosmic fake news. We bring clarity into a world of darkness, dignity into a world of dehumanization, beauty into a world of ugly self-centeredness. Clarity. So what Jesus says is, you are the light of the world. One of the primary functions of light is to expose darkness. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus is making a pretty exclusive radical claim. He says, I am the way to fullness of light and there's fullness of life and there's no other way. I am bringing clarity to the world and proclaiming to be the one and only savior of the world. And and, and thus, he's kind of making an offensive statement. He's saying there's no other path. There's no eightfold path. There's no 20-fold path. There's no other path. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God. No one can see ultimate reality apart from me. So light exposes darkness. And what do we mean by darkness? It doesn't mean, like when I say darkness, I don't mean like the world is dark. I don't mean that some of you and us are not smart. But really smart people, as we've seen in the last couple of years, do really dark things. True or not true? Educated people do really dark things. CEOs do really dark things. Hollywood executives do really dark things. We as neighbors do really dark things. We as parents do really dark things. Darkness is not about your IQ, not about your education level. Darkness It's not just about being morally superior or inferior. Darkness in the Bible just means futility. The futility of a life lived apart from the reign and the rule of God. A life cut off from or alienated from God. So that what happens in every generation, because there's darkness in the world, because we're cut off from God, is we just get caught up in what we'll call this cul-de-stack of futility. What we need is more education. Okay, what happens when we get education? We have World War I. Universal education leads to World War II and then the Vietnam War. And like every generation is going, why? Why is the world crazy? Because the world is trapped in darkness. They're seeking life and satisfaction apart from the living God. And this creates false narratives about what's right and wrong in the world. False trusts, bad allegiances, coping strategies that never bring about real life and always fail to deliver on what they promise. And so Jesus, when God says, let there be light, And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. What he's saying is, let there be clarity. (laughs) Don't we long for clarity? Let there be clarity about what's wrong with the world and about how it gets fixed. Let my people as the light of the world bring order into disorder. Let them bring symmetry where there's not symmetry. Let them bring harmony where there's a cacophony. Let them bring integration where there's disintegration. Let them bring ultimate reality where we have learned to settle for subpar 
humanity. Second thing that light means is dignity in a world of dehumanization. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the light. And, and, and remember who he's talking to here. Ordinary people who are under the boot of Roman imperialism. People who are oppressed in chapter 4. People who are demon-possessed. People who are sick. The ordinary, obscure people that lived in the backwoods and outside of the city of Jerusalem. The people that were overlooked as, as kind of the substantive people of those days. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and if you are united to me by faith, you matter to God. So he is restoring dignity, that fundamental thing that all of us long for. What are we fighting over in the world? Fundamentally, it's a desire to have dignity. I want to know that I matter. I want to know that I'm important. I want to know that I'm significant. And God says, you're a city on a hill. You can't be hidden. I've given you the light. And you go and make a difference in the world. And finally, beauty in a world of ugly self-centeredness. He says, let your, good, your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That word good there is not talking about uh, moral content. That word good, that there's two words in the New Testament for good. One refers to moral content. The other refers to form and attractiveness. So what he's saying, you could read this as, let your beautiful works shine so that people may give glory to your beautiful Father in heaven. It's a, it's a beauty word. It's an aesthetic word. Let them be compelling and attractive. We live in a world where everyone is focused on extending their personal brand, where everyone's trying to leverage themselves for the good of themselves, where everyone's you know, in, involved in different causes that if we're honest, sometimes are more about me getting a platform than me actually helping people. And he says, in that kind of world, do the kinds of works that draw attention to your beautiful Father in heaven. What makes our works beautiful and distinctive is because it is how they're done and to whom they point. They're done with a poverty of spirit. They're done with a heart for mercy. They're done with peacemaking in mind. Like how we do them is as important as what we say when we're engaged. And then where they point, they point others to the character of God, the wisdom of God, the kindness of God. Because, man, we live in a world that doesn't believe that stuff about God. They see God as an overbearing stepfather, as a cosmic uh, you know, rule keeper and judge. And we say, no, the heart of our Father is kind. He goes on to unpack what that looks like in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We're a people who pursue the beautiful work of reconciliation. We're a people that pursue the beautiful work of sexual integrity. We're a people that pursue the beautiful work of loving our enemies as if they were our own selves. The kind of good works, beautiful works that we're after are works, let me just give you a real simple definition, aligned with the heart of God, depending on the strength of God and pointing others to the glory of God. So here's what I want to do now at this point. So we talked dignity, beauty, clarity. Instead of just kind of going on with the rest of the sermon and, and talking about this at an abstract level, I'm going to actually invite up some folks in our community, some men and women, to just have a conversation about what this looks like to cultivate light in our everyday lives. Okay? Because I think it's more helpful for you to hear from people who are imperfectly seeking to do this as uh, as just regular, everyday people in, uh, in their workplaces, their families. And so if you guys would just come on up, we're going to do a little panel here, and we're going to discuss what it looks like to bring the light of Jesus into our everyday lives. Uh, yeah, Mike. 
Yes. Hey, thanks. So if you guys would just introduce yourselves. Um, just, just for the record, I've not paid them to say anything here. Uh, so they're here on their own free volition, uh, right? And uh, they're here, so they may say, who knows what they'll say. It'll be fun. That's why we do panels. They're lots of fun. So if you guys would introduce yourselves, kind of who you are, where you work, family, that kind of stuff, and then we'll begin to jump in and talk about what this looks like in, uh, in your world. Okay. Guess I'm going first? Yes, right. please. Hi, my name's Laura Hayes. I work for a company called Mavpack, like Maverick. Um, I live here in Broderpool, about two blocks away, and my entire family lives in, in town, so there's 13 of us total, so it could be Christmas or a Tuesday, and we're all together, so that's me. <laughs> I'm Jay Broder. Uh, I'm an officer here in Indianapolis. I work Fountain Square area. Um, I have a wife, Mariah, and my four-month-old daughter, Nahara. Um, don't be shy. Don't be modest. You're a rapper too. You got some okay. albums out. Check music. them out on iTunes. Do let's, let's do too. that. Yeah. So, okay. A little plug side note right there. You music. <laughs> I did it. Now you. So it's good. It's cool. Hey, I'm John Webster. I'm a nurse practitioner. I'm married to Julie over here for six years. We have a little boy Copley. He's eight months old in the uh, in childcare right now. Um, we've been members here for about two or three years. Now. Okay. So let's start off by just talking a little about light and darkness. I think when people think of uh, like, let's maybe think about business and your business, what you do, your craft, your vocation. When people think of darkness, they oftentimes think of like this massive moral evil. And I'm sure it's maybe more pronounced, it's going to be more pronounced in that way for Jay and the occupational hazards of a law enforcement officer, maybe than somebody who's a, a business owner. But w- like, what is, what does kind of darkness look like to you? We define it as futility or any kind of ways, ways that we try to find life apart from God. And you're all specific world and business and, and where you work, what does darkness look like and how do you guys try to, uh, how do you think about practically bringing light into those spaces? Because it's not always easily, uh, some things that we think are light are actually darkness and some things that people say are darkness are actually light. So what does that kind of look like for you guys to pursue uh, light in your industry? Um, for me, um, darkness in my field of work it's kind of two-sided. So one, it's in the lives of my coworkers and other officers, um, just different things that they go through. So I think police officers have a higher uh, divorce rate, a higher suicide rate, um, a lot having to do with the things that we see and things that we go through throughout the job. But then also we're taking some of those things and going into the world and helping people that are dealing with some of the same issues. So it's kind of... Um, two-sided it's, it's hard for a lot of officers um, and they deal with a lot of um, darkness like that I had a classmate about a month ago he committed suicide so it's one of those things where it's life is real and um, there's so much darkness around us and if there isn't a light it's going to continue to be dark um, so it just gives me motivation to to be that light um, because if I'm not who will so for me yeah um, so my world's a little different. I would so what we actually do, our company, we sell uh, packaging supplies, so boxes, tape, bubble wrap, to uh, the Amazons of the world. And so I have a couple industries, so the manufacturing warehouse an industry. I would say darkness is fear, selfishness. Um, the managers who see their, so their temp labor maybe makes 10 to 13 hours, uh, $10 an hour, and they may or may not show up. So they uh, see them as victims. They see themselves um, as uh, they're 
not serving their employees, but they see that employee as a commodity. So just the darkness that's around that of lack of serving them and um, lack of wanting to help people. And then on that selling side, uh, networking is a huge thing in my world. And um, just that I don't believe people are against us. I believe they're just really for themselves. And so what does that look like um, to get into drive? But I think it's really driven by fear um, on both of those worlds. But that's kind of the darkness that I kind of touch. I, uh, so Jay and I kind of probably see some similar people because I work in an emergency department, and um, you know, most people think oh, everyone in the emergency department's gotten shot or had a horrible car accident, but there's just a lot of suicide, uh, suicide attempts, suicidal ideation, um, drug abuse, addiction, and the, the top issues we see are, are, are pain, back pain, abdominal pain, chest pain. Um, so there's there's patients are uh, experience a lot of darkness. Um, you know, it's not uncommon that there'll be five, six uh, overdose patients in the department at one time. Um, it's not uncommon that we'll have a, a cri our crisis center will be on diversion, so we'll have people that are suicidal being watched by a security officer because there's no space for them to be seen at the psychiatric facility. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's definitely darkness. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, a lot of us that work there are kind of adrenaline junkies or... Um, you know, we're going through a lot to see to see this kind of thing, and um, the rates of drug abuse among nurses and staff are pretty high. Um, suicide. You know, I, my last job, uh, maybe about staff of about 75, four people in my three years there had been caught using drugs on the job. So hmm. that's just a uh, high amount. Of, that's the darkness I see on our side of things. Yeah, I think that was the biggest surprise. My wife and I and our family have thrown parties at Wheeler Mission uh, Center for Women and Children, and you go in having kind of a certain picture in your mind of what that's going to be like, and then it was just like a lot of like doctors and nurses who were there in recovery uh, at just the overwhelming nature of the pressure and the pace and the darkness. It's, it's a big challenge. So as you guys think about that and, and bringing light into those spaces, um, obviously this is not something you can do alone. Even as you think about kind of scheming together with other believers, other Christians, children of light, Jesus would say, who are in that, I mean, you know, you and Chris Higgins, both in our congregation, are in that space. Chris is a new officer, and I'm sure there's other guys that are older than you that are taking you under their wing, and you guys are maybe talking about what that looks like, and in business, you know, networking with others who are in the same space. What is, how do you guys just, in a day, on a day-in and day-out basis, think about um, just being a little, bringing a little bit of light, being a lamp or a city on a hill in those, uh, in that darkness? I'd say uh, when I see my patients, I try, you know, I have limited amount of time to talk with them, but I, uh, no matter what the issue is, even if, uh, it's, it's really easy to say, um, you know, you're probably homeless, or, you know, why are you really here? Are you really thinking you're having a heart attack, or do you just want a warm place to be for a little while? Uh, which, which I get, and that, that makes sense, but, you know, really give them the, the dignity of listening um, to them, give them the chance to have had an, an emergency and receive treatment, um, to, to, you know, trying to listen, you know, when you're seeing that all the time, this, um, the, the depraved situations, the poverty people are going through to, to um, try to pretend like it's the first time you're hearing it, like to listen to them like they're, uh, and to, to try to show them that you're seeing a little bit of what they're going through. I think that's how I try to bring some light. Um, you know, it's not going to fix the situation, but it's uh, a first step. Um, so it's one thing. For me, in my immediate area, me and Chris don't work in the same district anymore, but um, for me, it feels like it's just me. Um, but at the same time, knowing that God is the one that he's 
prepared these good works for me to walk into them. Um, so trusting that he has made me a light and he's not left me as a light to do it on my own, that he is continuously making me a light to continuously do that through my field. So on a day-to-day basis, I think just being gracious and being merciful because I've been shown grace and I've been shown mercy. So in situations where I could um, hammer somebody for doing whatever, um, being gracious to that person and showing them a different side that they might not see. I have people that thank me at the end of getting a ticket or getting arrested even, which is uncommon. <laughs> but but just the, that's, that's a testament to the fact that treating people, what Brandon was saying, with that, that dignity um, that even though, yes, you've committed this crime, yes, you've done this, you've done that, but at the same time, I'm no different than you. I'm, I commit the same sins uh, in God's eyes. So trusting in God with the light that he's given me um, and just being gracious to people and really just really trying to listen to God through those situations. Yeah, I hear from both of you uh, a lot of empathy that what God's done in you, you pour to the other people. Um, I, that's awesome. Um, so for me, we started Math Pack two years ago. Um, and our mission statement is to honor God in the way we serve people in a life-giving pursuit of excellence and accountability. And so uh, we didn't, when I came on, I didn't have a job title, nor did we know what I would do. I was along for the ride. Um, and But with the goal of Laura was hired to keep us on mission. And so we serve first, and so we live that out to the nth degree. So what that looks like, uh, we go in and meet with someone or a prospect or somebody introduces us. Uh, we don't go in and quote. We don't go in and, you know, this is what we can do. We don't talk about ourselves. We look for ways to serve. And so, so one way that kind of looks funny is they needed someone to paint the floors in their facility. We don't do that, but I knew someone. They needed someone to sell them a giant floor scrubber for ten grand, and I found in someone. They needed someone to put up blinds in their office. They needed someone to sell them a coffee machine. None of that do I do. Um, but I know people who do, and I vetted them out, and I make it my business to know anyone our customer may need. And um, so we got to do that. But as we're doing this along the way, all of our customers' number one pain point is always people. Employee engagement, keep getting people to come in and then stay and building up the bench, that next level of managers. And that was their constant, constant pain point. So thus evolved uh, MathPack University, MathPack U. And so that's where I come in. And so I get to just go in and serve them. And so I coach our managers on how um, to own their own talents and strengths and how to do that for their uh, people that they can serve if they don't understand the idea of servant leadership. We got to take 60 customers to EdgeX here that um, Edge sponsored. We got to host 150 people for the largest leadership conference in the world that Andy Stanley preached. We had uh, 90 customers come to a servant leadership workshop where one of uh, the guys on our team's pastor came and preached. So we get to be the light. Uh, we gain influence along the way. So that's kind of how we serve, and we get to be different. And that's kind of my story. Yeah. Some of you are like, man, I'd like to work with or for these people because um, that's not our experience. So as you're doing that, what I hear and I see is a real intentionality with the presence that you bring. Obviously, imperfectly, we're gonna, there's mistakes that are being made along the way. And you're learning, oh, you know, that wasn't gracious or, oh, I didn't listen there or, hey, I didn't serve first uh, in a way that was helpful. So there's, there's a constant learning. But the goal to be intentional uh, and to, to, to think about each day as you wake up, I'm sure, as I go today and I'm out in the field, how, how am I going to, God, who do you have for me? You know, who, who can I be gracious to? Thinking intentionally about that 
So you're, but you're running against the grain. I mean, I can't think of a time in recent history. Uh, thankfully, I haven't been pulled over in a while, uh, Jay. Uh, as your pastor, not since I've been in uh, Indianapolis, I don't believe. Is that your? Okay. No. Um, my wife's here on the front row, fact checker. Um, but I don't think there's been a time where I'm like, man, that guy was gracious. And like thanking him, that, that, that's going to create questions. People are going to ask, you know, John, John, man, you just listen. You know these patients are just lying to you. And, and, and yet you maintain this. You're trying to listen. You're trying to be compassionate. Lord, don't you realize you're going to lose money? By being a serve first person, people are going to take advantage of you. That's crazy. Why would you do that? Or, hey, Laura, you've been so helpful. Why do, why do you do that? So let's talk about like this idea of the beautiful works leading to you glorifying your Father in heaven. How do you guys use those opportunities? How do you press into that tension of like, if you do good work in the name of Jesus, you should be getting asked questions about why. And it'd be easy in those spaces to maybe go, well... Just that's what I do. I'm just awesome. You know, or uh, maybe you draw attention to yourself or to your company. But Jesus is saying here, you have a platform to be able to say, no, it's because I've been shown mercy that I, as a police officer, seek to show mercy. Tell me about what that looks like. How do you, how have you, have you done that maybe well or seen fruit? Where have you blown it, you know, struggled maybe in that space? Because that can be a scary thing. It takes a lot of courage, obviously. So what does just sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus look like uh, in, in your workspace? That's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up because that's how I feel like um, that applies to all of us here, right? That's the the way that we would, one of the great ways that I feel the Holy Spirit encourages me to share the gospel. I'm by no means an expert. I'm really um, struggling through that, definitely. Uh, you know, when someone notices that I've done a good job with something or I've gone the extra mile to be kind, um, I try to point it back to God or say I have so much, uh, you know, I'm, I act that way because I have so much to be thankful for because of, um, the way God has treated me. Um, and in my workplace, it's pretty, you know, it's a fa- it's fast-paced, and I don't need, there's so many ethical implications to, like, sharing the gospel with a patient. Like, I don't know how I'd ever do that. I've, I've prayed with plenty of patients that have asked me to or are believers. Um, and I, so I think that's something I'm definitely still working out. And maybe I should make this plug real quick. We are starting a, um, a group of healthcare workers that are going to meet maybe once or twice a month to talk about things like this because um, there's a lot of ethical issues and there's a lot of um, struggles um, to being a Christian in that uh, setting. And so we're going to meet uh, February 5th um, to talk about that, and you'll see more about that eventually. But, um, yeah, I think this is, a, this is where we need to be talking about. I think the, the Holy Spirit pushes me to answer. Like, I feel that when someone points that out. You've, you know, why did you spend that much time with that person? You know they're crazy. Well, I have the time right now, and they're going through a lot. So, um, But I feel the Holy Spirit pointing me, you've got to say more. You've got to, this is about me and about the good, the good news that I've um, given you and that you need to share with others. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to share that with my patients. I think uh, sharing the gospel in the workplace, it comes down to getting creative um, because some people might not be able to due to ethical issues and whatnot. Um, but for me, um, I have tattoos. Um, so, and all of my tattoos tell stories. So I like to, when I'm out working, coworkers or people on the streets, they'll ask me what they mean. So it just opens up a door automatically uh, for me to share the gospel about what this tattoo means and why do I have a torch on my arm signifying being a light in the world. Um, so, um, Really, just getting creative and using your resources. Um, also, 
we see people at really bad times of their lives. Um, so it's not uncommon for a Christian officer to want to pray with a person that is sitting here waiting for the coroner to come pick up their mother that just passed away or a mm-hmm. uh, daughter that just overdosed. Um, so just really trying to be there for people that aren't believers so they can see what it's like to be a believer and to have Jesus be there for us. Um, because really showing them that implication of what it looks like to have a father or have that comfort or have that hand on your shoulder when you're going through this time of need um, can really push them to want to know Jesus and um, just continue to share the gospel to them to let them know why they need Jesus and why these things are happening in the world and what we can do about it and the hope that we have. So, yeah, just trusting God, but really I can't do it without without praying and asking God to open up these doors and just really trusting in that Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which we prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Um, so just trust in him that, hey, God, I know that you've prepared a good work for me to walk into, so allow me to do it and listen to your Holy Spirit in the process. So Before you move on, uh, has anybody ever told you no when you've asked to pray for him? No, <laughs> I haven't. I mean, I mean, I'm just saying, like, yeah. nobody's going to be like, don't pray for me. Yeah, don't pray. Um, but you can offer. That's like a simple way. John mentioned the same thing. I think it's a really powerful way just to say, hey, man, can I pray? You may not even believe the same thing as me, but I want to pray that God blesses you because I believe that in part of what you're expressing there is like, I believe God is here right now. God's not just in church on Sunday. He's actually, his spirit is operative out in the community. And so why would I not just acknowledge that and stop and say, hey, God is here with us right now. I want to pray for you. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to like beat him over the head with the Bible or do anything yeah crazy like that but like you know um that's i like that and that's just like a simple thing that is very powerful in a moment when somebody desperately needs to know that god is for them mm-hmm. laura yeah do you know the phrase i love jesus but i cuss a little <laughs> brooklyn brooklyn said the same thing in the first service <laughs> good <laughs> so um let me be clear <laughs> I, uh, in business, we crush it for our customers. They, uh, we can go in, and that's that kind of level of excellence, that we are going to help their business go further faster and drive savings and labor and freight and so many things behind the scenes, and we love to do that. And so that's where the influence comes. Um, if you're the only hot dog stand in town, you don't have to be that great. Um, so we believe um, in being uniquely better and being that dr- true drive behind excellence. And so the fear of, will someone take advantage of you? Uh, probably, they probably will. And uh, excellence in accountability will probably let them go. Uh, we fired customers before. But um, overall, that's not been the experience. The first time we did a presentation and uh, we were debating on this slide presentation where to put the mission statement. And we had it at the last and then last minute made it the first slide. Um, and that was really, really vulnerable. And the man we were sitting with at the end said, well, you're just like every other vendor except your first slide. And from then on, we decided that's always how we're going to roll. So 100 meetings later now, we're yet to have anyone, like you said, has anyone said no to let you pray for them? Nope. Um, Has anyone ever balked at it or criticized us? Nope. And what I think is cool is that whole point of light, we kind of represent hope. So when you're bringing hope to the table, people want it. It is a dark world. It is lonely. It is sad. Everyone's going through this world with heartache and battles that you don't know they're fighting. And so um, uh, 
in a first meeting, one of the guys will curse. It's going to happen. I'm just going to tell you right now. But we always say the mission statement in any meeting we have so that they also know who they're dealing with. Um, and then along the way, we don't preach to them. We don't bring it up all the time. We do desperately want them to come to church with us, and they have at times. And now it's the expectation. We've done enough of these events. We did uh, 12 events last year. We'll do 21 this year. And um, I'm the strengths coach, so I get to come in and teach them about how God made them uniquely special and what their talents are. And I get to um, – I literally say these are your God-given talents. Um, and so I have that influence, but we've gained it along the way. So that's mm. kind of how we get to lean in. That's really interesting. It's kind of empowering because I think for a lot of us, sharing the gospel is really intimidating because the fear of rejection or the fear of, like, I'm going to lose my job or, you know, the ethics, and those are certainly things. But, like, uh, a lot of times it seems like what people are saying no to is uh, a God that's not real, (laughs) an experience that they had that was not actually real Christianity. It was some misrepresentation or distortion of that. And so having the courage to just say, we believe in this, we have a conviction, and we're going to live into that conviction. But then what I'm hearing you say is we're going to embody it. It's not going to be a slogan. Like uh, um, some Christian businesses, it's just a slogan to market to get people in the door, but then they act like everyone else. What you're saying is we're going to prove it first, then have an opportunity to share the gospel because our, our works are aligned with our proclamation. And I think that's, that's really important. And hopefully that's empowering and maybe liberating for some of us that are afraid to, to be open and honest about where we're at in our faith journey. It is biblical. <laughs> yeah, serve right. first. Um, and we have seen uh, if you serve first, you will be served every time. Yeah. Yeah. So just wrapping up here, we're going to um, skip. I want to get to um, talk about families, singleness, and the interest of time. I'm just going to cut it short here. But I do want, for those who are sitting out here and kind of maybe just haven't thought about this, like thought about how to integrate uh, the call to be the light of the world into their everyday life, how would you, just any last like minute, it's kind of a surprise question, but any just last minute encouragements on how you might encourage somebody to take the next step in that process, whether they be a business owner who's maybe rethinking their employee manuals and policies they would be in the medical profession and are beginning to go, oh, like there's a, there's a, there's a bigger thing here than just even like uh, quality care. Like there's a greater transcendent value on caring for people as God's cared for us. Law enforcement, same thing. Like, yes, there's, there's truth and justice, but there's also the opportunity for mercy. And, and so whatever your sector is, what would you – and you just last second encouragements on uh, a, a next step for somebody that's seeking to do that with integrity. I would say write down five people that you know in your immediate sector or whatever it may be and begin praying for them now, mm-hmm. today. Um, because God could provide the opportunity for you to share the gospel with them tomorrow um, due to those prayers today. Um, or it may happen a year from now. But regardless, praying for those people now and having them in mind and then being able to see that fruit come um, would just be really encouraging. Um, I think just, again, going back to trusting in God, it, it really all it goes back to. Really, it, it's scary trying to do that, but I think um, taking a leap of faith and trusting him with everything, even if it is rejection, knowing that even though through that rejection, um, God is going to use it and he's going to do something with it. So I'd say uh, to the healthcare workers out there that we're, you know, in the same way that um, Jesus gives us second chances, we're giving second chances to our patients. And that's a really powerful thing if you think about it. Um, and I'd say, um, you know, when you go into your, 
think of the, the most difficult patients you're going to be working with, and if you can um, bring kindness that's, that's undue, so they're acting one way, and you're going to, instead of just be, being cold, you're going to be kind, you're going to go the extra mile to make them comfortable, no matter how disagreeable or ornery they are or whatever situation they're going through, it's, it's the worst day of their life probably. Um, if you can be kind and show them light there, you'll, you'll be able to be kind and show light um, to all of your patients. That's powerful. Yeah, some of these people never may be your worst patient. So it's good to hear from John. If you go visit him, he's going to be kind to you. Anything you want to add, Laura? Um, just from the standpoint in business, um, it can be pretty selfish and cutthroat. And once again, I think that's fear-driven because people have to feed their family, and so they go to the, the base and core of their heart. Uh, so seek to serve. Look for someone to serve. Think about why you're doing it, uh, why you're currently doing your role, whatever it is, whatever your job is, um, and how can you make someone else's life better. Um, that's what it's about. Let's thank our panel. Yeah, take those. All right. So much better than anything I could have said in that space right there. Thank you guys for making it real and making it practical in everyday life. Um, let me just bring us home to communion here as we close every week in our service. Just being reminded that um, we're never going to nail this. Jesus commands us to be the light of the world, but we have to remember we are not the light. He says you're like a lamp, and we know about a lamp is it's a derivative light, right? It doesn't have any power source in of itself. It has to be lit in order to be uh, to give light. And so, just two quick like applications for us, I guess, from this is one: um, in order to be the light of the world, we must encounter the light ourselves. We must own the darkness that's inside of us because there's not just darkness out in the world it's easy to rage against the darkness and there is a lot of darkness in our industries and in our world uh in every domain of our world every country i mean there's there's just like no neutral zone no safe place from the darkness it is everywhere out there but it is in us as well and we talk a lot about the darkness out there as a church but we often don't talk about the darkness in here we perpetuate the very things that we hate in our world we commit them with our closest friends. We hold on to grudges and we're resentful and embittered and mean-spirited. I mean, think about some of your broken relationships right now that are unreconciled because you and I don't even live this out. We are hypocrites. We don't live this out in our own families, in our own neighborhoods, right? And so we own that darkness and we realize that we need the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I come to expose the darkness in your soul and to bring the light of God, the life of God into you, to heal you, to make you whole, and to literally light you. I love the illustration that Jay used, to make you like a torch. But you have to encounter me first. You have to confess the darkness inside of you. First John, he who says he has no darkness is a liar and does not practice the truth. But let us walk in the light, he says, to confess our sins to God and to ask for God to forgive us and to heal us. That's why Jesus came. He came. He was swallowed up by the darkness so that we could become light. John chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus says it like this. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Is there light in you? Is there true light? Is the light of Jesus in you? If not, man, it's as simple as crying out, God, I need your light. God, I am walking in darkness. I'm a child of darkness under the domain in the kingdom of darkness. I need you. And that might be a person who's here and super religious, but your life is more about avoiding what's wrong than loving light. It's more about avoiding darkness than it is about loving the light. 
Or you may be here and you're just totally irreligious and you never encountered Jesus as he really is, as the light of the world, as the life-giving creative force of God brought into the world to rescue us from darkness. Second thing I would say um, is embody the light. Encounter the light, embody the light. We embody the light as God's children through these thick practices of love together. He says, you are the light. Not you as an individual. That word there, you, um, there's not a good equivalent. I'm from the South. We have a word for this. It's called y'all. Okay, that's the second person plural in the South. So he's basically saying y'all are the light of the world. You guys, you know, depending on where you are, like yins if you're from the Northeast. Okay, like you, you, second person plural, are the light of the world. None of us individually can be the light without each other. We must live this out as a community, embodying and learning what it looks like to live into this vision of a, of a people of resilient love together. And so I need Jay, and Jay needs me. Jay needs Mariah, and Mariah needs Jay. And I need Brooklyn, and I need Emily, and I need Brandon. I mean, we together are learning what it looks like to love one another as God has loved us in Christ. That's the only way we become a powerful light. We cannot shine on our own. Isaiah 42 God says this to his people, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. What does that look like? To open the eyes of the blind. Practical love. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. That is practical Love. What is true religion, James says? Visit the orphan, the orphan and the widow in their affliction. Practical love. First John chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. I don't know what this looks like for you, for us. I know we can't reduce it down to four-year political cycles and who we check a box for on a voter tab registration. We're not, as Christians, I don't think it's supposed to be less than political. We, we serve a king who has a kingdom and an administration. He's bringing policy into the world. We're not less than, but we're certainly more. We don't reduce it down to that. We don't freak out when we don't get what we want. Or we don't overly celebrate, excessively celebrate when we do get what we want. The word polis in political means city. We're an alternative city with alternative loves and loyalties and affections. And so when Jesus says you're the light of the world, he's saying not just who you vote for. He's talking about the totality of your life, the totality of our collective life together, live publicly every day, everyone, everywhere for the glory of God. That's what it means to be the light of the world. And so let's take a moment as we come to the table to just reflect. Have you encountered the light? Are you walking in the light? Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you owned your darkness, confessed it to him, and asked him to come into your life and to light you up? That's what it looks like to be a Christian. Not that you're morally superior, not that you keep all the rules, but that you're trusting in the light to save you. Maybe today you confess that for the first time and you come and you take communion as a Christian, the son of the light, a daughter of the light. Secondly, embody the light. Where am I falling short in being a light? In my workplace, in my family relationships, in my community. Let's confess this and let's ask God to empower us to do the beautiful work that he's given us to bring him glory in our community. The way we practice communion here at Soma, we have stations in the front, stations in the back. Come and take a piece of the bread, tear it off, dip it into the cup. If you're not 
a son or daughter of the light. If you're not a Christian, we'd invite you to stay in your seat while others come and reflect and consider what it might look like for you to, to truly own the darkness and to give yourself to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace on us.